we praise you and thank you for this opportunity to come together in your name. You are a great God, the Lord of heaven and earth, and we praise you, Lord God. You have brought us up from the dust and you have breathed the breath of life into our lungs and you have made us a living being, created in your own image and likeness. Oh, that you would grant unto us, Lord God, the ability to comprehend it, to understand the great and marvelous things you have done for us as your children. And so we pray tonight that you would open up your word to us in such a way as that we can understand the marvelous things that you have done for us. We praise you for this time together in your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Well, thank you for joining us, brothers and sisters. Of course, we're joining you online. I'm at the church. You're at home on your couch. Hopefully you still aren't in your pajamas because it's 6.30 in the evening. So Maundy Thursday, it has a really weird name. And if you don't come from a background of Roman Catholicism or maybe Episcopalianism or Lutheranism, you, have, you probably haven't even heard of it, right? You've heard of Good Friday and you've all heard of Easter. But Maundy Thursday comes from the old Latin term mandatum. And the reason that they used to use that in the old church is because you had to legally use Latin for terms like this when you talked about things in the Bible. Even though the Bible itself was written in Greek and the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, we use it in English, and the derivation of this word basically came through English Catholicism. And yet this mandatum, this thing that was given, that's the old word for commandment, from the Latin, not from the Greek. As we come to our Christian faith, we still bring in the idea of this greatest commandment, not only the greatest commandment, but a new commandment that I give to you. Not like the commandments that I gave to your fathers, I give you a new commandment. And so at the very beginning, we can even question, did Jesus give us a new commandment, or did he give us a deeper, fuller, richer expression of an old commandment in a new and different way? With this, we, of course, go all the way back to the Old Testament, because the New Testament is just the Old Testament explained. The coming of Jesus Christ is just the Old Testament explained. The New Testament is the revelation of everything hidden in type and shadow in the Old Covenant, given to us in the New for a deeper and richer understanding. The things that were shadows there are in bright lights in the New. So here we have Jesus come to us in John chapter 13 to teach us a deeper truth than we heretofore had known. So let's go ahead and turn there now. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels. But John has some special things to say. Now, of course, we're coming together at the time of the Passover, the last week of Jesus' life. And I'm going to read the passage in its entirety so that we can reach the depths and understand it. Now, if you've, if you've come to the church or you've heard these things before, you know that I like to read the whole thing so that we can get in on the narrative. And the reason we want to get in on the narrative is because piece by piece lines drawn out of their context and subject matter given from Scripture that's not given in its full expression can be easily warped to one side or the other. But when we read scripture in its entirety, we tend to get the full understanding of what's happened. 
It's not by mistake that when God wrote the scriptures, he wrote them in narrative form in stories of people doing things in the real world through real time and space so that we can understand fully from things that we already know. Now here in chapter 13, verse 1 of the book of John. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. When he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that's why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet, he put on his outer garments and resumed his place. And he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have watched your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus had loved, was reclining at the table beside Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he spake, so that the disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, is it I? Jesus said, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread that I have dipped in. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do it quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that it was because Jesus had the money bag. Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or 
that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Lord our God, please bless the reading of your word, Lord God, and please open it deeper to us so that we can see the wonderful things that we have therein. Now in John, we get a narrative. And in Matthew chapter 26, we get a differing narrative, not differing in its content, but differing in its scope. From verse 17 of 26, and on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And Jesus tells them and they go in. We have to understand that the entire context of this day and the things that happened there are happening on the Passover. When we go all the way back to the Old Testament to understand the Passover, we have to go to Exodus chapter 12 from verses 11 through 14. Now we remember that all the way back in the beginning, the gospel was given to Adam and Eve, and after them was given to Noah, and after them to Abraham, the father of the faithful, and after him to Isaac, and then to Jacob. But eventually the gospel came in a clearer form through Moses, through types and signs and shadows and the institution of different things to do in order to reveal Christ before his coming. One of those things was the Passover event, which happened because of a great curse that God was laying upon the people that persecuted the people of God. For 380 years, Israel, the people of God, had labored in vain, in slavery, serving others, not to their own, but to another's wealth. And when Moses was going to deliver them, the last great curse that fell upon the people in the many plagues that came, was administrated through the giving of the Passover. Here it says this, In this manner you shall eat of it, with your belt fastened and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout all your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. 
So this is the day that they're celebrating, this special day, which is going to come into its culmination, into its fullest expression in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In some ways, we could even see Christ as being that Passover lamb that was slain and that it was his blood that's put on the doorposts, which are us, so that the angel of death might pass over and he not visit us with his curse, but with his blessing. The blood of Christ was shed that day in type and shadow. It was shed on the cross in reality. Now also, while taking this meal, and you remember things about the meal, you remember the unleavened bread, you remember the cups of wine, you remember the bitter herbs, and that they were to eat it with their sandals on and with their traveling clothes and with their staff in their hand so that they can remember the bitterness that they suffered at that time. See, one of the hardest things for God to do is bless his people in such a way as they do not take it as a license for sin. And so that he could bless them abundantly, he had to give them a memory, a tool so that they would remember the suffering that they had before they came into covenant with their God. So this type, this shadow of Christ to come, Jesus loved celebrating the Passover. It says in verse 17 of chapter 26 of Matthew, now on the day of unleavened bread, he said, go into the city and a certain man and say to him, teacher, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus directed them and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he reclined at the table with the 12. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? And he answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. And the Son of Man goes as it was written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, you have said so. Now, as they were beginning to eat, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples. You have to remember, those of you who have churches who celebrate the Lord's Supper, something that you'd commonly call communion, he was celebrating the Passover. The bread was the Passover bread. The wine was the Passover wine. They were having the meal, he was blessing it, and he broke it in his hands and he gave it to them and he said these words that we say every time we celebrate this now. Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Here is the institution of the Lord's Supper. If you wondered where it happens in Scripture and what the significance of it is, we are still celebrating the Passover every time we take the Lord's Supper. The administration of it has changed. Some of the form of it has changed. There's no longer a lamb to sacrifice. There's no longer blood to be shed because Christ's blood has been shed for you. So now it is a bloodless sacrifice with wine representing the blood that's already fallen in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago and never needs to fall again. The bread is the representation of his body which has already been broken for you. Now in Luke, it also tells us that the way that he did this was he took it and he gave it to them and they distributed it among themselves, which means that it came from a common cup 
that they then took unto themselves. And this bread came from a common loaf, which they then broke unto themselves. There are reasons that the signification of the different ways that this is done in Scripture are binding upon the conscience of the Christian now. There are reasons why we can't actually celebrate the Lord's Supper through this screen. It's when the people come together as one people and are in one place. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, it explains in greater detail exactly why we have to be together to do it. There is a real truth in physical proximity and the togetherness that happens when the people of God come together as opposed to when they're apart. Now, what I'm doing for you right now is kind of like a phone call, except for you can hear me and I can't hear you. But at the same time, the togetherness of the body being in one place at one time is a normative aspect of Scripture. It's not arbitrary, and it can't really break it. Here at this time, he had given them a message. And this message was to have perpetuity for 2,000 years until today that his body was broken for us and his blood was shed. Think of all of the sacrifices and types and shadows in the Old Covenant. Think of the Passover lamb, but also think of the scapegoat. If you remember, there was this time when two goats had to come before them and the high priest would come out and he would lay his hands on them. And one goat would be sacrificed and its body would be burned so that God could smell the pleasing aroma of the people's sacrifice, representing Christ having died for them. And the other he also placed his hands on, representing the sins of the people. And that goat was let go outside the camp. We don't even know what happened to it because it goes off and it's never seen again, carrying away the sins of the people into the wilderness of forgetfulness. These are the same things that Christ does for us. Now here, as we go on, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, let's turn there now. I know you're probably not turning because I can't see you. Doesn't mean you shouldn't be turning. First, we want to say this. We know that Jesus here and the Apostle Paul later in chapter 11 explains to us that we do this in remembrance of him. But it's not merely a remembrance. You have to remember that eating something, it becomes a part of your body. Drinking something, it becomes a part of your body. It goes in and nourishes the fabric of your being. So there's, it's not as if there's any magic in the item. We don't believe in transubstantiation, that it turns into the body or blood of Jesus, but we do believe that there is, as Augustine said, a relationship between the sign and the things signified by the sign. In other words, we do spiritually feed upon Christ, do we not? Now, we do that when we pray, and we do that when we sing the psalms. We do that so many times. We also do that when we take the Lord's Supper, because it is not just called a remembrance, it's also called a participation. Let's read that verse in chapter 10. From verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge from yourselves. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? 
So if you want to pay a lot of attention to adjectives and to verbs, pay attention not just to the remembrance, but also the participation. A participation might even sound to us fuller than a mere remembrance, because it's not just something that comes around the brain. It's not just remembering something that happened, but it has no real spiritual significance. He calls it here participation in the body and blood of Christ. Now, only the Christian with faith in the heart can truly participate, which is why in other places he says those that do not participate in a worthy manner actually drink and eat condemnation upon themselves. Now, the only way that that can happen is that there's a little more spiritual event happening here than we commonly give it credit to in the contemporary church. He goes on to say, because there is one bread, and we who are many are one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. What do I imply then? The food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons, and you cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So he understands the tempestuous line between idolatry and between superstition and between trying to make the element something they're not and the fact that it is obviously a spiritual participation in Christ. He goes on to say this. In the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Now, the Apostle Paul's entire description of the Lord's Supper here, he's already started it. There's a parenthesis in the middle, and now he goes back to it, but he's going to explain to us deeper things about the Lord's Supper, perhaps deeper things than you have ever known. But he's going to do it within the context of a horrific rebuke upon the church in Corinth in the first century A.D., of the 16 books that the Apostle Paul writes in the New Testament, about 15 of them are correcting the church for erroneous doctrine. The idea that the early church had everything in a pristine and perfect fashion that was later convoluted by future generations is simply not true. The church had completely messed up not only the gospel, but the practice of the church well within the first century AD, requiring God to write through the Apostle Paul these correctives to correct not only our theology, but our practice. So he implies from the beginning that it's only when they come together that they can do this thing. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. One of the reasons that factions start to exist in a church is so those that are dutiful and faithful and are seeking truth can be shown to be truthful and dutiful and seeking the truth. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Now, this is an important line. He's talking about whether or not they truly or falsely celebrate the Supper. And he's going to explain that there are two ways that you can falsely celebrate the Supper. One is to come together and attempt to have the Supper, but for people to be of the wrong mind, the wrong heart, and the wrong practice. And he explains to them, if you're not really going to eat the Supper, go home. He's already told them this is only happening when they come together as a church, and he explains to them that if they are not coming together as a church for the right reason, they're supposed to go home, implying that those that are home 
are not celebrating the Lord's Supper. It's not a reach. When you come together, it is not for the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. That does imply certain things about the Lord's Supper and the fact that in the Old Covenant and the Passover, they always used wine. And it also implies that when they celebrated the Lord's Supper in the New Covenant church that the Apostle Paul's talking about, they used wine because it really takes a lot of grape juice to get drunk. Verse 22, he says, what? Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? So he does make a discriminating point between them doing something at their own home and house and them doing something at the church. And he says, if they're not doing this at the church, they should be doing it at home. And he's not talking about them going home to celebrate the Lord's Supper by themselves or with Pepsi or with Chips Ahoy cookies or apart from the church. Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Notice the Apostle Paul is pounding them at this point. He's not being nice. Most of the time the Apostle Paul's nice until he's not. He's nice when he's talking about the gospel. And he's nice when he's commending them for suffering for Christ. And he's nice when he's commending them for evangelizing and spreading the gospel. But when they're wrong, they are dead wrong. He does not hold back. Verse 23, he explains what he's saying. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Notice that he says he received it from the Lord. We have to remember that Paul got personal tutelage from Jesus Christ himself. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after the supper, saying, this is the cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, of course, even though he doesn't say it here, we don't only proclaim the Lord's death, though we do proclaim it. But a few days after, he rises from the dead victorious, and his resurrection from the dead declares to every man everywhere that he was not just a man, or just a messiah, or just a philosopher, or just a great moral teacher, but God manifested human flesh, because who else has the power of an imperishable life? Verse 27, we talked about this before, but he's going to continue. Whoever therefore eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. This also testifies to the deep spiritual content of the supper, that it's not a mere artifact. It's not a mere ritual that we do in order to remember what Jesus did. Quite frankly, I remember what Jesus did fine without doing it, but a participation. And some people participate rightly and some people participate poorly. And those who participate poorly can bring themselves under the condemnation of God because now we're talking about holy things. And I know the church is not into holy things anymore. We try to have things be as unholy as possible. But there's a difference between things being common and brought down to the level of popular culture so that it can be accessible to every person that comes and it not being holy. If you want to have your church with couches, I don't care. If you want to get rid of all the churchy look of it, I don't care. If you want to make sure that people aren't wearing ties and jackets, I don't care. But wherever you come together, and those people whom you come together with, 
are considered holy to God. You will not get rid of holiness. The holy aspect of the things we do is pervasive, and it's clearly taught in the Word of God. Let's remember that holy things are holy and common things are common. He goes on to explain that a person examine himself, then and so let him eat of the bread. For anyone who drinks, eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some of you have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Now, what is discerning the body and blood of the Lord? Here's one thing that it's not. There are two major theological traditions in this country, possibly three. But there are two major traditions. There's one that says that when the church comes together, it's coming together because these are the good and righteous people, and these are the ones that truly understand, and they're excluding from themselves the unclean people. And so when they come together with the cup, it's because they've been cleansed and because they're already clean enough to eat. The other tradition, which I happen to be a part of, and hopefully you are a part of, they come together, and the first thing that they say is every one of us has sinned every day in thought, word, and deed, and all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And so our declaration is we need Christ. We want Christ. We want grace. And God is willing to give it, and we are willing to receive it. The second, we would fight for the Lord's Supper if someone tried to keep it from us because we so deeply and earnestly need the grace of God to save us from our sin. We discern the body and blood of the Lord, and it is for us. We are not the good people that are getting the grace of God that we don't hardly need. That's not, dis that's not discerning the body and blood. That is the rejection of the body and blood. But if you believe you're a sinner in need of grace and you see Christ clearly as the only possible means of your salvation, you are seeing Christ. So this idea that the examination of the self is to just see whether you've done too many sins that week, that's not the implication of the text at all. You will never have done few enough sins to take the Lord's Supper if the taking of it is contingent upon your own personal goodness. Taking the Lord's Supper and discerning the Lord is not discerning your own righteousness. It's discerning your unworthiness and his excellence. And if you come in that mind, if you come in a heart that says, I'm a sinner, you're a savior, and he gives you his body and blood to eat, you are rightly discerning the body and blood. And also, because of the context of this passage, he widens this out to say, are you looking to your left? Are you looking to your right? Are you understanding and discerning that those around you are also saved by Christ? And so they should be loved, and you should sacrifice yourself for them. Now, you're really discerning the body. He goes on to say this, but in the following instructions, excuse me, so then, my brothers, when you come together for eat, to eat, wait for one another. Notice that again he emphasizes the distinction between something an individual can do and something they do when they come together as the church. Earlier he said you're only going to do this when you come together. Now he's capitalizing upon that idea to broaden it out. He says, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If another one is hungry, 
Let him eat at home, because that's not the Lord's Supper. So when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About other things, I will give directions when I come. The Bible covers everything. It covers everything. There's nothing that he's leaving out here. He's giving us the information that we need in order to know exactly what we're doing. We need to come together and have a proper administration of the supper in order to do it rightly. Now, I'm not saying that this is some kind of a metaphysical or philosophical conundrum about being and whether or not there's some magic going on in the supper. I don't believe that there is. But there's a way that it's said to do it, and there's a way that's implied that we're not supposed to do it. And the way that we're not supposed to do it is any way other than it's said to do it. Many of the great theologians have called this the regulative principle of Scripture. If it's said to do it, we do it. If it's not said to do it, you better not do it. Otherwise, you're making up the religion. God didn't give us the latitude to remake the religion in our own likeness, according to our own preferences. He revealed the religion because this is what is best for you. This was what keeps you safe. This is what will make you whole. This is what will grant you peace. And everything that we drag into the religion that's just from the judgments of men, however rational they seem to be, is just mere human superstition. It's just mere human superstition. So if God has given it to us to do, we do it. And if God has not given it to us to do, we'd better stay away from it, as if it's poison to the soul, because inevitably it will be. As we go on in this text, we start to see in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, from verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body of death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. What will this say to us today? When we're living in such a time as the people are dying around us, and there's sickness, and the economy's crashing, and everything, everything seems like gloom and doom, and yet Christ is saying, not only is there much worse than this that you could suffer, but that he has you in his hand, and he has made promises to you at this time. Have you been betrayed? He's also been betrayed. Have you been gossiped and lied about? He has also been gossiped and lied about. Have you been dragged through the streets by your hair bleeding? Probably not. But he's going to go through that for you. You have not yet suffered to the point of the shedding of blood. But he has. Also in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he talks about the fact, the Apostle Paul, that we preach Christ crucified. We don't preach it preach a Christ that is uncrucified. We don't preach a Christ that has not suffered. We don't preach a Christ that has not been betrayed. If the world decides to betray you, you are just manifesting yourself as a true son of your father and a true brother of Jesus. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly, foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. 
But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God chose what is weak to shame the strong. You know, take this insult that the Apostle Paul is giving you and realize that it's a blessing. One of the things that he says, and this will be true about you, not many of you are wise. How many of you were the president of a great university? How many of you were powerful? How many of you were the president of a nation? How many of you were kings? How many of you were philosophers? Not many. And the ones that do come to Christ tend to get dragged through the streets, intellectually speaking, as fools, liars. We're ashamed of them because they lift up the name of Christ. We don't say, wow, he's so brilliant. He's come to Christianity. That doesn't happen. Those of you that have been through the great universities and come to Christ are very few because they are not designed to save you. In many ways, they might be designed to destroy you. But at the same time, there is a witness that comes from knowing Christ, and he tends to draw together the people that are simple, the people that have not done great things, the people that are not rich and powerful, the people that are not impressive in the eyes of the world, but God has found them impressive. For whatever reason, he has drawn them to himself and filled them with his spirit so that they believe the true gospel of the true king of the universe. And not only that, he includes them in his family. Through adoption, they become a part of his family so that they are now brothers to Christ and partakers in his inheritance. And his inheritance is vast, brothers and sisters. His inheritance is the entire world. So don't be envious of the world and all their trinkets. Because on the last day, they won't amount to anything. Everyone always thinks that they will last forever. Not a single one of them does. Christ, in order to save you, thought it worthy to be insulted and betrayed. In Lamentations chapter 1, verse 1, it says, How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become. She who is great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces, has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude, and she dwells now among the nations but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan. Her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head, and the enemies prosper, because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions and her children have gone away captives before her enemies. Now, there are many times in a sermon when a pastor will say, is this you? But at the same time, I say, is this you? Because this is Israel. This is the people of God. This is the people that had the covenants. This is the people that had the law. This is the people that had the Passover. This is the people that had the Passover lamb. This is the people that had the high priest. This is the people that had the shedding of blood. This is the people that had the coming Messiah. And he still calls them betrayers. 
And yet after this lamentation, he will open a door to them and he will bring them back and he will wash them with cool water and he will wash the blood from their face and the filth from their hands and they will be restored and made new. If you recognize in yourself a brokenness and a lostness, also recognize the possibility in yourself for being renewed and restored. In Philippians chapter 2, from verse 5, the Apostle Paul again commends us to Christ's likeness. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped after, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient even to the point of death, even to a death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. The Westminster Larger Catechism has questions in it. And if you've never used a catechism in your worship, I understand that. It's not a common thing. But that doesn't mean that the catechisms aren't an amazing gift to the church in order to just clearly explicate the things that otherwise would take years of study in Scripture to know. Question 48 says, how did Christ humble himself in this life? The answer is Christ humbled himself in this life by subjecting himself to the law, which he perfectly fulfilled, and by conflicting with the indignities of the world, the temptations of Satan, the infirmities of the flesh, whether coming from the nature of man or particularly accompanying his low condition. In question 49, how did Christ humble himself in his death? Christ humbled himself in his death in that having been betrayed by Judas and forsaken by his own disciples, he was scorned and rejected by the world, condemned by Pilate, and tormented by his persecutors, having also conflicted with the terrors of death and the powers of darkness and felt and borne the weight of God's wrath, offering for sin, enduring the painful, shameful, and cursed death of the cross. Now again, the subject of this day, just in history and tradition, is called the mandatum, where he actually tells us, love your, the Christians the way I've loved you. Now in the beginning, when God gave his law to Adam, it was in microscopic form. Do not betray, do not be unfaithful, do not eat of this tree as a symbolic representation of the utter completeness of the moral law of God. And yet he broke that law and brought us all into sin with him. He broke the, the covenant of works, but it opened up a door for a covenant of grace. And with Moses, when he was up on the mountain, he was given ten commandments, and those ten commandments were the law of God. And then later, Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, remember, the Lord your God, your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your mind, all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And the second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he gets to this place and he gives them a deeper revelation of the commandment, one that could not have been given before. It could, in ways, as they understood the scapegoat and they understood the Passover lamb and they understood the sacrifices and they understood the priesthood, but now he had come. And when he had given up his life and died for them and suffered the pains of hell on their behalf so that they could be set free and live forever and ever then finally they would know what love was. Until Christ came, we knew, 
but we didn't really know. And so now he gives them a new commandment, which is not really a new one, but it's new to us. If you want to know what love is, treat those around you the way I've treated you. And what did he do for us? He gave up his life. Christian, you are called to a level of holiness, which is not some kind of a strange abstraction of staying away from unclean foods like lobster. You have been given a love for which you've been given ample example that when you come to Christ and you say, I believe in you, I'm going to be a Christian, a follower of Christ, I'm going to be a person of God, at that moment you've given up your life. And you have agreed to die not only to yourself, but you've agreed to die for everyone else. Do you understand the weight, the obligation, the duty? It's a heavy weight, right? If it doesn't feel like a heavy weight, you're not quite getting it. Because it is the giving over of yourself. Because Christ gave himself over for you. And not from fear, not from just obligation, but from love. Not only does he give us a clear example of what love is, but by the Spirit, which has brought us to spiritual life from spiritual death, he has also given us the ability to love as he has loved. Let us die to ourselves with Christ. As he goes to the cross, let us go with him. We should want to be crucified beside him, even though we're not honorable enough to deserve such a worthy death. And frankly, we'll never be asked. You'll never be asked to die for your faith. You might, but you probably won't. But are you willing to live for Christ while he's been willing to die for you? Are we willing to die to ourselves in order to live for the body? Let's pray. Lord God, in all of these things, we know that you are a great God, and we are only sinners in need of grace, Lord God. But you have restored us, and you have cleaned us. You have made us holy, Lord God, when we were unholy. You have given us a righteousness that is not our own, that we wear as a robe that you have given us when we are not righteous in ourselves. We are both justified and still sinners. Lord God, you are so good to us, and we pray that you would provoke in us this newness of life so that we might cherish and honor and chase after the great things that you have given us. One of which is this mandate, the mandatum, this new commandment that we would love each other the way you have already loved us. We praise you and thank you for this honor and this opportunity. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you so much. My honor.